Chapter Twenty Eight of Fighting the Flying Circus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Fighting the Flying Circus by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Chapter Twenty Eight. Frank Luke strafes his last balloon. Neither side could afford to leave its lines undefended by observation balloons for a longer period than was necessary for replacements. Our onslaught of the early morning had destroyed so many of the Huns' draken, however, that it was quite impossible for them to get new balloons up at once, along their entire sector. That same afternoon I flew along their lines to see what progress they were making in replacements of their observation posts. Only balloon I could discover in our sector was one which lifted its head just behind the town of Sivry-sur-Meuse. I made a note of its position, and decided to try to bring it down early next morning. Accordingly, I was up again at the same hour the following day, and again found the sky promised clear weather. Leaving the field at five-thirty, I again took up a course over Verdun, in order to pick up the Meuse River there, and follow it as a guide. On this occasion I caught a grand view of no man's land, as seen from the air by night. It was not yet daylight when I reached the lines, and there I caught a longitudinal view of the span of the ground that separated the two opposing armies. For upon both sides of this span of ground a horizontal line of flashes could be seen issuing from the mouths of rival guns. The German batteries were drawn up along their front scarcely a mile back of their line, and on our side a vastly more crowded line of flashes indicated the overwhelming superiority in numbers of the guns that the American artillerymen were using to belabor the already vanquished Huns. So far as my eye could reach, this dark space lay outlined between the two lines of living fire. It was a most spectacular sight. I followed down its course for a few miles, then turned again to the north and tried to find the Meuse River. After ten minutes' flight into Germany, I realized I had crossed the river before I began to turn north, and that I must be some distance inside the enemy's lines. I dropped down still lower as I saw the outlines of a town in front of me, and circling above it I discovered that I had penetrated some twenty-five miles inside Hunland, and was now over the village of Stenay. I had overshot Sivry by about twenty miles. I lost no time in heading out towards France. Opening up the throttle, I struck west and followed this course until I had the Meuse River again under my nose. Then, turning up the river, I flew just above the road which follows along its banks. It was now getting light enough to distinguish objects on the ground below. This Meuse River Highway is a lovely drive to take in the daytime, for it passes through a fertile and picturesque country. The little city of Dans-sur-Meuse stands out on a small cliff which juts into a bend of the river, making a most charming picture of what a medieval town should look like. I passed directly down Main Street over Dans-sur-Meuse, and again picked up the broad highway that clung to the bank of the river. Occasional vehicles were now abroad below me. Day had broken, and the Huns were up and ready for work. It occurred to me that I might as well fly a bit lower and entertain the passing Huns with a little bullet-dodging as we met each other. My morning's work was spoiled anyway. It was becoming too late to take on a balloon now. Perhaps I might meet a general in his automobile, and it would be fun to see him jump for the ditch and throw himself down on his face at the bottom. If I was fortunate enough to get him, that would surely be helping along the war." Ahead of me I saw a truck moving slowly in the same direction I was going. "'Here goes for the first one,' I said to myself. I tipped down the nose of my machine and reached for my triggers. As my nose went down, something appeared over my top wing, which took away my breath for an instant. There, directly in my path, was a huge enemy observation balloon. 
It was swaying in the breeze, and the cable which held it to earth ran straight down until it reached the moving truck ahead of me. Then it became clear as daylight to me. The Hans were towing a new balloon up the road to its position for observation. They had just received a replacement from the supply station of Dansermuse, and after filling it with gas, were now getting it forward as rapidly as possible. It was just the target I had been searching for. Forgetting the truck and crew, I flattened out instantly and began firing at the swaying monster in the air. So close to it had I come before I saw it that I had only time to fire a burst of fifty shots when I was forced to make a vertical virage to avoid crashing through it. I was then but four or five hundred feet above ground. Just as I began the virage, I heard the rat-tat-tat-tat-tat of a machine-gun fire from the truck on the road beneath me, and mingled with this drum-fire I heard the sound of an explosion in the fuselage just behind my ear. One of their explosive bullets had come very close to my head, and had exploded against a lingeron or wire in the tail of the aeroplane. There was nothing I could do about that, however, except to fly along as steadily as possible, until I reached a place of safety and could make an investigation of the damage received. I cleared the side of the gas bag, and then as I passed I turned and looked behind me. The enemy balloon was just at the point of exploding, and the observer had already leaped from his basket and was still dropping through the air with his parachute not yet opened. It was a very short distance to Mother Earth, and sometimes a parachute needs a two or three hundred foot fall in which to fully open and check the swiftness of the falling body. I wondered whether this poor chap had any chance for his life in that short distance and just what bones he was likely to break when he landed. And then came a great burst of fire as the whole interior of the big balloon became suddenly ignited. I couldn't resist one shout of exultation at the magnificent display of fireworks I had thus set off, hoping in the meantime that its dull glare would reach the eyes of some of our own balloon observers across the lines, who would thus be in a position to give me the confirmation of my eleventh victory. Again I decided to pay a call at Jerry Vasconcel's field at Verdun, and there get out and ascertain the extent of the damage in the tail of my spod. Jerry welcomed me with some amusement, and wanted to know whether this dropping in on him was to be a daily occurrence. Yesterday it had been a broken prop, and today a broken tail. Before answering him I got out, and together we made a minute examination of my machine. A neat row of bullet holes ran back down the tail of my machine. They were as nicely spaced as if they had been put in by careful measurement. The first hole was about four inches back of the pad on which my head rests when I am in the seat. The others were directly back of it at regular intervals. One, the explosive bullet, had struck the lingeron that runs the length of the fuselage, and this had made the sharp explosion that I had heard at the time. The gunners on the truck had done an excellent bit of shooting. None of the holes were in a vital spot of the machine. I took off the field after a short inspection, and soon covered the fifteen or sixteen miles that lay between the Verdun field and our own. Upon landing I found very bad news awaiting me. On the previous afternoon, Lieutenant Sherry and Lieutenant Nutt, both of 94 Squadron, had gone out on patrol and had failed to come in. Long after dark, their mechanics remained on the field, popping up very lights in the hope that they might still be searching about, trying to find their way. At last we abandoned all hope ourselves, and waited for the morning's news from outside sources. Now it had arrived, and to my great joy it was in the form of a telephone call from old Madame Sherry himself, but his next message informed me that Nutt had been killed in combat, and Sherry himself had been through an experience that might easily have turned one hair's gray. 
Just before lunchtime, Sherry came in by automobile and told us the story of his experiences. He and Nutt had attacked an overwhelming formation of eight Fokker machines. They had stolen up on the Heinies and counted upon getting one or two victims before the others were aware of their presence. But the attack failed, and suddenly both American pilots were having the fight of their lives. The Hun pilots were not only skillful and experienced, but they worked together with such nicety that Sherry and Nutt were unable either to hold their own or to escape. Soon each was fighting a separate battle against four enemy machines. Sherry saw Nutt go crashing down, and later learned that he had been shot through the heart and killed in air. A moment later, Sherry's machine received several bullets in the motor, which put it immediately out of commission. Dropping swiftly to earth, Sherry saw that the Hun pilots were not taking any chances, but were determined to kill him as he fell. He was two miles or more in the air when he began his forced descent. All the way down, the enemy pilots pursued him, firing through his machine continuously as it glided smoothly towards earth. Only by miracles a dozen times repeated did he escape death from their bullets. He saw the lines below him, and made desperate efforts to glide his machine to our side of the fence, despite the furious attempts of the Bosch to prevent this escape. At last he crashed in one of the million shell-holes that covered no man's land of last week. His machine turned over and broke into a score of fragments, Sherry being thrown some yards away, where he landed unhurt at the bottom of another shell-hole. While he was still pinching himself to make sure he was actually unhurt, he discovered his implacable enemies peeking upon him with their Fokkers and firing long bursts of bullets into his shell-hole with their machine-guns. Sherry clung as closely to the sides of his hole as he could, and watched the dirt fly up all around him as the Fokkers made dive after dive at him. It must have been like watching a file of executioners leveling their guns at one and firing dozens of rounds without hitting one, except that in Sherry's case it was machine-guns that were doing the firing. Finally the Fokkers made off for Germany. Crawling out of his hole, Sherry discovered that a formation of spots had come to his rescue and had chased the Germans homewards. And then he began to wonder on which side of the trenches he had fallen, for he had been too busy dodging Fokkers to know where his crippled machine was taking him. One can imagine Sherry's joy when he heard a doughboy in perfectly good United States yell from a neighboring shell-hole, "'Hey, Guy! Where the hell's your gas-mask?' Madame didn't care for the moment whether he had a gas-mask or not, so glad was he to learn that he had fallen among friends and was still in the land of the living. He quickly tumbled into the next shell-hole, where he found his new friend. The latter informed him that he was still in no-man's land, that the German infantry were but a hundred yards away, and that gas-shells had been coming across that space all afternoon. He even gave Madame his own gas-mask and his pistol, saying he guessed he was more used to gas than an aviator would be. He advised Sherry to lay low where he was until nightfall, when he would see him back into our lines. And thus Lieutenant Sherry spent the next few hours reviewing the strange episodes that flavor the career of an aviator. Sherry finished his story with a grim recital of what occurred when they went out next morning to recover Nutt's body. It too had fallen into no man's land, but the Americans had advanced a few hundred yards during the night, and now covered the spot where Nutt's body lay. Sherry accompanied a squad of doughboys out to the spot where Nutt's smashed machine had lain during the night. They found poor Nutt, as I have said, with several bullets through the heart. They extricated the body from the wreckage, and were beginning to dig a grave, when a shot from a hidden Hun sniper struck one of the burial party in the foot. The others jumped to their guns and disappeared through the trees. They soon returned with a look of savage satisfaction on their faces, although Sherry had not heard a shot fired. While they continued their work, 
he strolled off in the direction from which they had returned. Behind a trench dugout, he found the German sniper who had the yellowness to fire upon a burial party. The man's head was crushed flat with the butts of the doughboy's guns. Frank Luke, the marvelous balloon strafer of the 27th, did not return last night. So reads the last entry in my flight diary of September 29, 1918. Rereading that line brings back to me the common anxiety of the whole group over the extraordinary and prolonged absence of their most popular member, for Luke's very mischievousness and irresponsibility made every one of us feel that he must be cared for and nursed back into a more disciplined way of fighting, and flying, and living. His escapades were the talk of the camp, and the despair of his superior officers. Fully a month after his disappearance, his commanding officer, Alfred Grant, captain of the 27th Squadron, told me that if Luke ever did come back, he would court-martial him first, and then recommend him for the Legion of Honor. In a word, Luke mingled with his disdain for bullets a very similar distaste for the orders of his superior officers. When imperative orders were given him to come immediately home after a patrol, Luke would unconcernedly land at some French aerodrome miles away, spend the night there, and arrive home after dark the next night. But, as he almost invariably landed, with one or two more enemy balloons to his credit, which he had destroyed on the way home, he was usually let off with a reprimand and a caution not to repeat the offense. As blandly indifferent to reprimands as to orders, Luke failed to return again the following night. This studied disobedience to orders could not be ignored, and thus Captain Grant had stated that if Luke ever did return he must be disciplined for his insubordination. The night of September 27th Luke spent the night with the French Sagan on the Toul Aerodrome. The last we had heard from Luke was that at six o'clock on the night of September 28th he left the French field where he had spent the night, and, flying low over one of the American balloon headquarters, he circled over their heads until he had attracted the attention of the officers, then dropped them a brief note which he had written in his aeroplane. As may well be imagined, Luke was a prime favorite with our balloon staff. All the officers of that organization worshipped the boy for his daring and his wonderful successes against the balloon department of their foes. They appreciated the value of balloon observation to the enemy, and knew the difficulties and dangers in attacking these well-defended posts. Running out and picking up the streamer and sheet of paper which fell near their office, they unfolded the ladder and read, Look out for enemy balloon at D2 and D4 positions. Luke. Already Luke's machine was disappearing in the direction of the first balloon, which lay just beyond the Meuse. It was too dark to make out its dim outline at this distance, but as they all gathered about the front of their office, they glued their eyes to the spot where they knew it hung. For Luke had notified them several times previously as to his intended victims, and every time they had been rewarded for their watching. Two minutes later a great red glow lit up the northwestern horizon, and before the last of it died away the second German balloon had likewise burst into flames. Their intrepid hero had again fulfilled his promise. They hastened into their headquarters and called up our operations officer and announced Frank Luke's last two victories. Then we waited for Luke to make his dramatic appearance. But Luke never came. That night and the next day we rather maligned him for his continued absence, supposing naturally enough that he had returned to his French friends for the night. But when no news of him came to us, when repeated inquiries elicited no information as to his movements after he had brought down his last balloon, every man in the group became aware that we had lost the greatest airman in our army. From that day to this, not one word of reliable information has reached us concerning Luke's disappearance. Not a trace of his machine was ever found. 
Not a single clue to his death and burial was ever obtained from the Germans. Like Gundmeyer, the miraculous airman of France, Frank Luke was swallowed by the skies, and no mortal traces of him remain. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.